Welcome to I Have to Ask. I'm Jordan Weissman, Slate's senior economics correspondent. Ordinarily, I host the show Working here at Slate, where I talk to people about what they do at their jobs all day. But this week, I am sitting in for Isaac Chotner. Um, and my guest today is Jason Zengerly, the political correspondent for GQ magazine and a contributing writer for the New York Times magazine, where last month he published a uh, really fantastic piece entitled How the Trump Administration is Remaking the Courts which is, uh, of course, pretty relevant if you spent today watching the Brett Kavanaugh hearing like we both did. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I'm just going to start with, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm both a little bit emotionally and mentally exhausted after having just watched that hearing. I'm curious, just broadly, what you made of, of what we all just witnessed today. I mean, it was it was draining. <laughs> I agree. I mean, but both both you know morning and afternoon, but draining for very different reasons. Um, it, I mean, it was just it was they were both such uh, diametrically kind of opposite experiences. Um, you know, Ford's testimony was so uh, compelling on a personal level, um, and then I thought Kavanaugh's testimony was compelling kind of, I mean, it was somewhat compelling on a personal level, but very compelling on a political level. Um, I think, you know, he did exactly what he needed to do um, to get confirmed. I mean, it's going to be a pure party line vote. Uh, There's no chance of him winning over any Democrats. I think, you know, he recognizes that the White House recognizes that at this point, he had to play purely to the base and play to Republicans and play in such a way and be so kind of convincing to them that it becomes increasingly difficult for those Republicans who are on the fence to actually vote against him. So, you know, people like Collins and Murkowski and Flake. Um, and I thought that, you know, his his anger and his emotion and even some of his, you know, kind of his sarcasm. Um, I saw someone, I forget who said it. I think I saw it on Twitter. Someone said, you know, he for this afternoon, he changed from a Bush Republican to a Trump Republican. And I think that's that's really true. And, you know, it was it was just such a contrast to um, to Ford in the morning, who was so, uh, you know, kind of understated and, um, you know, kind of going out of her way even to sort of try to please, uh, you know, the Republican senators and the the woman who was questioning her. Um, Kavanaugh was just so in his face to the Democrats. And, you know, that opening statement talking about revenge of the Clintons and left wing conspiracies, it was it was you know, it was something <laughs> you don't usually see that. Yeah, I, I guess another way to put it is that he needed to make himself somebody who a Trump Republican would care about that. If Susan Collins or, or Murkowski were to uh, vote against him, they would suffer the wrath of, of their base voters. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're in, they're in tricky positions politically. I mean, I think, you know, Maine, the, there probably aren't as many Trump-based voters as there are in, say, Arkansas. Um, but at the same time, you know, the Senate is a, it's a social institution and they have to go into their caucus lunch. And if it's very hard, I think uh, it's going to be very hard for them to be the vote that sinks him um, after that performance. At least that's my sense of it. Uh, I thought that he, you know, he really did a job of kind of rallying Republican support uh, in a way that the Fox interview didn't. I think there are a lot, I think there are a lot of sort of activist Republicans who are already, you know, kind of uh, so-so on him, a little lukewarm. Um, And the Fox interview didn't really help things. But then today, I think, especially turning it back on the Democrats, I mean, Ford just was kind of disappeared in the, uh, the afternoon hearing. I mean, you know, the Republicans spent a lot more time talking about the other two allegations, um, you know, and ridiculing Avenatti. 
And then they spent a lot of time bashing Diane Feinstein. Um, they really didn't try to, they just, I mean, it was, it was really interesting the way they kind of made noises about how sympathetic they were towards Ford and how she had been victimized by Democrats in the media the same way that Kavanaugh had been victimized by Democrats in the media. I mean, they really, they didn't want to address what she said in the morning. They wanted to try to turn the attention and on the focus on someone else and make them into the enemy. And that for them, that would be Feinstein and then Avenatti and these these other accusers. Right. It, it seemed like their goal was to paint the entire thing as a craven democratic conspiracy to take down a perfectly good man where they were using this woman um, who, as far as they were concerned, may have been misremembering who her attacker was or something along those lines. Yeah, that she was well-intentioned and she was being exploited. I mean, and I thought, you know, f- to a certain degree, the Democratic senators kind of let them get away with that. I thought that that Booker and Harris asked questions that were a little better in terms of shifting the focus back onto Ford. But, you know, all the Democratic senators asking Kavanaugh repeatedly about whether he would allow the FBI to investigate. I mean, that's a legitimate question. Um, And, you know, I think an important one. I mean, the fact that he won't, I think, says something. But um, Ford seemed to kind of get lost in all that. And I thought that the more you, for, for as far as Democrats are concerned, especially when it comes to um, votes like Murkowski and Collins and Flake and maybe Corker, if if those four Republicans are thinking about Ford when it comes time to cast their vote, that's probably better for the Democrats. And I thought that the way um, the afternoon hearing kind of got away from Ford, I think, was very helpful to Kavanaugh and the Republicans. I want to talk about your recent article um, in a minute, which is really about this sort of 30-year process that Republicans have sort of been populating the courts with very conservative jurists and how, in a way, Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation would sort of be the the capstone of all that. They will have finally a uh, solid majority on the Supreme Court. But the thing I've been struggling with is why Kavanaugh in particular seems so important to them. Um, why are they willing to go to the mat to defend this guy with a obviously these very serious allegations against him um, where where it seems like they're expending a lot of political capital. It could hurt them in the midterms. Why they're doing that when they seemingly could just as easily, you know, have him withdraw, drop his nomination and nominate someone like Amy Barrett, another solid conservative uh, judge. Um what is special about Brett Kavanaugh? Is there anything special about him at this point that he himself need that there's some reason they have to confirm him? You weren't impressed by his lifting schedule and all of that. <laughs> that he <laughs> right? His yeah, he managed to get A's and play basketball or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So he's first in his class, except maybe not sophomore junior year, but by senior year. I, I don't. I actually don't think there's anything that special about Brett Kavanaugh. I think you're right. Barrett would be just as good from their perspective. I think what what is important at this point is the timing. That if if Kavanaugh were to withdraw now, I don't think that they could nominate and confirm someone before the November midterms. And if if Republicans were to lose the Senate in November, the it would be very tricky to confirm. Uh, Kavanaugh's replacement during the lame duck. And if they couldn't even do it during the lame duck, then there's no way you're going to get that person through a Democratic Senate in January. And, you know, I don't think I don't think the odds are great that Democrats are going to take back the Senate in November, but 
it's possible. And I don't think they want to take that risk. I mean, like you were saying, this is something they've been working towards for 30 years. This is, you know, they're right at the goal line. Um, and even, even if confirming Kavanaugh were to cost them seats in November, I do think there's an argument on the Republican side that it'll be worth it. I mean, you're going to get this guy in his early fifties on the court and you're going to have a conservative majority um, for the first time in you know three quarters of a century, and he's going to be on that court for probably thirty years. Uh, so I think that those are the factors that are causing them to go to the mats for him. I mean, I, I think I think that's one factor. I think there's a calendar, and I think that's what Senate Republicans and I think Trump people are thinking. I think there's another factor here, which has to do with people in the conservative um, legal movement, people in the federal society. And you know they're the ones who convinced Trump to to nominate Kavanaugh, and I think I think that their relationship with Trump is it's a purely transactional relationship, and therefore it's not that strong. And it's been really successful up to this point, obviously. And Trump has subcontracted out the job of picking judges to them to a degree that no other Republican president ever has. But at the same time. Trump himself isn't an originalist or a textualist. These are not things he believes deeply. Um, and I think, therefore, the first time one of these nominations goes poorly for Trump, that's going to – that, that federal society people run the risk of losing influence with him. And were Kavanaugh to go down, that would be really embarrassing to Trump. I mean, even if he could get Barrett or someone else on the court, I think he would still be embarrassed and angry. And, you know, the next time he had to pick a judge, he might not go to Leonard Leo for his his advice. And I think that's something that, you know, people in the conservative legal movement who are quite close to Kavanaugh and who lobbied hard on Kavanaugh's behalf to get the nomination, I think they're they're aware of that. And they, you know, they, they recognize that their own standing would likely be hurt if if he were to, to go down. So I actually want to ask you a little bit of a remedial question for listeners who are not necessarily um, deep in, you know, Washington legal politics, um, which is what is the Federalist Society exactly and why are they so important? The Federalist Society, like at, a mo at its most basic level, is just it's a professional organization. I mean, I think conservatives would say it basically performs the same function as the American Bar Association for lawyers and law students who think the ABA is too liberal. Um, it's, it's a place it, it started on law school campuses and that's, that's sort of the gateway to it. Uh, still, I mean, it's very active on law school campuses. If you're a conservative law student and maybe you feel out of place, uh, at a law school, or you feel like you're surrounded by liberals, the, the federal society is kind of a safe space for you to go and you kind of start attending meetings of it. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a debating society. They have uh, events where they discuss legal theory, and they'll have liberals come to them to debate conservatives. It's it's a very, um, for all the power that it has, it's it's a very open, kind of somewhat banal organization. I mean, they have a big meeting every year in Washington at the Mayflower Hotel, um, the big national meeting, and uh, you know, invariably, like four or five people make the same joke in the speech that they give to it about how it's the only sort of, you know, secret conspiracy that broadcasts its proceedings on C-SPAN because C-SPAN covers all the speeches. Like it's, it's not like some sort of sinister cabal or anything because it is fairly out in the open. At the same time, it's, um, since its founding, you know, 30 years ago, it's, it's really managed to 
create a, a pipeline of these um, you know conservative lawyers who who become judges and eventually get on you know maybe some of them get to the Supreme Court. I mean they. When they founded it, they kind of recognized that law schools they, they believed were you know sort of liberal institutions, and they weren't, and therefore the, the the students that were being produced by law schools who would become lawyers, become judges, they were kind of you know infected with liberal bias, and the federal society was supposed to you know correct that, and it, and it, it really has. It's done a remarkable job of um, creating kind of a cadre of people like Brett Kavanaugh, who you know are are very smart and very credentialed. They all went to excellent law schools. They clerked for the right judges. They uh, worked at the right law firms. Um, but it, it's created a number of them. You know, it sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier, like, what's so special about Brett Kavanaugh? Like, there, there are a lot of other people out there like Brett Kavanaugh who could who could do this job. And and that's a real credit to the Federal Society um, that they that they have this, you know, they they like to joke about the deep bench they've created. Um, and, and they really have done that. And you said that the Trump administration is now more working more closely with the Federal Society to pick judges than any administration before. Why is that? And how has that affected the process? That that to me is, I think, one of the more interesting stories because you know, the Federal Society has had influence with Republican presidents um, since Reagan. When it was found, you know, not long after it was founded, it it began to get influence with Reagan, and and certainly had it with H. W. Bush and Bush, and and those um, those presidents, I think, had a sort of a philosophical kind of agreement with the Federal Society about you know the importance of conservative jurists. Um, it was something. I think they actually probably understood what the Federal Society's project was in a way that Trump doesn't. Um, you know, in fact, like Trump, they just they didn't have a relationship. You know, when 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 the Republican primaries were starting in uh, 2016, all the candidates, you know, all 17 or 18, all of them had better relationships with the Federal Society than Trump. Trump just didn't have one because it wasn't something that Trump really cared about. I mean, to the extent that he thought about the courts, you know, he was thinking about you know, real estate law and landlord tenant disputes or whatever else, he was not thinking about weighty constitutional issues. And I think at first, the Federal Society, like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of establishment Republicans kind of turned their nose up at Trump. But once Trump started to get traction, and it looked like he might be the nominee, uh, Leonard Leo, who, you know, more or less runs the Federal Society, I think, I think he realized that Trump's kind of ignorance or lack of, you know, care about the law was actually, an opportunity for them because one thing Trump really needed to do during the primaries was reassure conservative voters that he would appoint conservative judges. And that became especially important after Scalia died because there, and, you know, McConnell made it clear that he was going to keep that seat open. I mean, it became a real black and white choice for Republicans. Um, and Trump needed to, to convince those Republicans that he was going to do what they wanted when it came to conservative judges. And the best way Trump could do that, the best way he could signal that was to basically say, I'm going to let the Federal Society pick my judges. Um, he needed to do that for electoral reasons. And he basically just turned it over to the Federal Society. And that reassured Republican voters. I mean, you look at the exit polls in November, and you know, you can you can make like the legitimate argument that without the Supreme Court issue, Trump wouldn't have beaten Clinton, that it was the decisive issue in the race. Because um, that was so important to the evangelical base. Yeah. And, and you know, beyond evangelicals, definitely evangelicals, but even just there are just certain conservative voters who care about the courts way more than liberal voters care about the courts. And that open that open Supreme Court seat and Trump's, you know, 
it wasn't even sort of a wink and a nod. Like he explicitly said, the Federal Society is going to pick my judges. You know, he had the Federal Society draw up a list of potential Supreme Court jurists, which he released. I mean, no one had ever done that before. Like every president has a short list of, you know, candidates for the Supreme Court, but they, they, that's a pretty closely guarded secret. And especially because they don't want to give the opposition chance to research them. But Trump just kind of did away with that. He actually like revealed the list. And I think that did a lot to reassure, reassure Republican voters. So precisely because like Trump didn't care about this stuff, he gave the Federal Society way more um, sway than they would have had with a normal Republican president. I mean, there's so many there's so many other factors that oftentimes go into these judicial selections, Not, maybe less so for the Supreme Court, but like certainly for these appellate court justice uh, judges and these district court judges. Um, you know, a Republican president or any president will oftentimes use those judgeships as bargaining chips with senators and with the Senate. You know, I'll give you this judge if you vote for my, you know, if you vote for the ag appropriation bill. Um, it's just, it's, there's, they're just part of the mix. Um, Trump has not done that at all. He has just refused for the most part to negotiate with uh, Democrats about judgeships. And he and has basically let the Federal Society pick, you know, whoever they wanted. Um, you know, the Federal Society working with Don McGahn. I mean, we have to be a little bit careful about, you know, talking about the Federal Society too generally. But they've had way more – I mean, they sort of have a dream team, right? They have a list of, you know, they're kind of their, the maximist, the maximum people they would want. And they've basically gotten all of them. And that's uh, that's that's been different. Ironically, it seems like you're saying is that the least ideological president ended up being the most ideological on judges because he was willing to just outsource it to yeah. this group. Yeah, it's um, it's really it's just one of the more surprising developments. I mean, you think like Trump left to his own devices, you know, it would be Supreme Court Justice Jeanine Pirro or something. Um, <laughs> but maybe Andrew uh, Napolitano. he's the second seat yeah Yeah. exactly uh well so what's interesting about that is when you think of conservative legal issues or you think about legal issues that animate the conservative base the first thing that comes to mind is always abortion but that's not really what animates the federalist society is it it's it's more i guess you'd say technocratic or regulatory issues as you kind of talk about in your piece right um, well, I think I think the regulatory issues are ones they're more comfortable talking about. I, I do think Roe is a pretty big factor. Um, you know, I think I think they try to hide the ball a little bit more there, or a lot more there. Um, but uh, abortion is a big deal um, to, to I think a lot of federal society members. It's certainly a big deal to Leonard Leo, um, Ed Whelan, people like that. Uh, they just they're they're more careful about um, about sort of publicly you know, kind of reveling in that. The, the regulatory stuff, they're, they're more comfortable, you know, just talking about explicitly. I, I should make it clear that when I say regulatory issues, we're talking about the ability of government agencies to oversee the economy, to, to kind of do their basic job, and whether or not judges can kind of stop, say, the EPA from interpreting environmental regulations in some way, um, or the Department of Labor from interpreting, you know, um, wage and hour laws a certain way if, if it feels it's necessary. Um, this is really kind of core economic stuff. And and so I guess I'm wondering, if, with a guy like Kavanaugh now, you know, on the verge of being confirmed to the court, how much do, I guess, how much should Democrats be worried about their ability to pass economic regulation? How much How much should they be worried about their ability to pass things like health care regulation? 
I think they should be very worried about it. And I think um, I think they, they haven't been worried enough, um, at least from their public stances. I mean, if you go back to the Kavanaugh hearings you know, before this most recent uh, iteration of them, there were a lot more questions about abortion. Um, there were a lot more questions about, you know, pilfered emails in the early 2000s than there were about Chevron deference. Um, and what is Chevron deference? So Chevron deference is a, you know, it's a judicial principle that basically the court should give deference to the administrative agencies. I mean, you know, that, that legislation is inherently ambiguous. It's written in an ambiguous way to allow the experts at these administ- you know, executive branch agencies to kind of, you know, decide how to apply the law. And courts traditionally have granted those those agencies deference. And if you get rid of Chevron deference, that basically you're basically saying the agencies shouldn't be granted deference. And unless like Congress, you know, explicitly stipulates this what the law is, that agencies have no flexibility in applying it. Mm-hmm. And it would, you know, it would really um undo a lot of regulation. And I think, you know, I think liberal legal people and Democrat, you know, some Democrats kind of recognize how how problematic that would be for what they want to do, but you don't see the same amount of alarm about it publicly, maybe that you do see about Roe, um, it, which is just, it's always, it's just been striking watching the hearings and, and seeing the, I feel like Democrats would have, you know, maybe been smarter to, to, to make a bigger issue of that than they did. You say that Trump has been historically successful in terms of confirming judges and just the numbers bear that out. He's just, you know, managed to move a, a large number of jurists very quickly onto the bench. Why is it that he has been so successful compared to, say, Barack Obama during his early term? I mean, Trump has, and when I say Trump, I mean I also sort of mean like Don McGahn and Mitch McConnell have have paid more attention to it than Obama did. I mean, Republicans have been much, uh, just much more aggressive about nominating people and getting them confirmed quickly. It's it's a much faster process, and they've. Um, you know, they're also operating in a different environment in the Senate in terms of rules. Um, you know, when Obama, I mean, I, I don't think the Obama administration placed nearly the same priority on judges that the Trump administration has, both in terms of nominating them, getting confirmed, moving them quickly. At the same time, the Senate was a different, um, it just operated differently then. There's this thing called the blue slip, which is a, it's a Senate rule, which basically allows a home state judge to put a hold on a nominee, a judicial nominee from their state. When a judge is nominated from a senator's state, that senator returns literally a piece of blue paper, a blue slip of paper that signals that 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 judicial nominee should get a hearing from the Judiciary Committee. And when Obama was president, the and the Senate Demo- and Democrats held the Senate. The Judiciary Committee chairman was a guy named Pat Leahy from Vermont, um, and he treated the blue slip as a holy writ. If any any home state senator didn't think the judicial nominee should get a hearing, Leahy would not convene a hearing for that person. Um, when Democrats lost the Senate, Chuck Grassley became the Judicial Committee chairman, Judiciary Committee chairman, and he had he abided by the same blue slip policy as Leahy. When Trump was elected, though, Grassley changed the blue slip policy, and he no longer allows um, an individual senator to hold up a hearing on a judicial nominee. So now, you know, and this has now happened a few times where uh Democratic senators have not returned the blue slip on a judicial nominee, and Grassley just holds the hearing for him anyway. And then the senators voted out of committee on a party line vote and wins a party line vote on the Senate floor. And, you know, during the Obama administration, 
Republicans were so obstructionist with the judicial nominees that Harry Reid um, instituted the nuclear option, it was called, where he got rid of the filibuster on judicial nominees. And so now Democrats can't filibuster these judicial nominees. And then, you know, when Gorsuch was nominated, there were still the filibuster still existed for Supreme Court nominees. Um, but when Gorsuch was nominated and Democrats were going to filibuster him, McConnell got rid of the filibuster on Supreme Court nominees. So just procedurally, um, there's really not much Democrats can do to stop uh, to stop Republican judges from being confirmed. And, you know, as long as the Trump administration has the will to nominate them and push them through, um, they're going to get confirmed. So I think that it's it's a sort of a two part um, explanation. One, the Trump administration is just more focused on it. And two, Democrats don't have the same kind of roadblocks available to them that Republicans had when uh, when Obama was president. And, and that's interesting because it seemed like such a huge deal when Democrats eliminated the filibuster on uh, appellate and district court judges. But they still gave Republicans some say in the process because of blue slips. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that Republicans still had some leverage. And, you know, and Obama was not... Um, he wasn't trying to pick fights. I mean, I think, you know, I think the Garland nomination is like the great, you know, example of that. I mean, he he nominated someone who he thought Republicans would be okay with. I mean, he was a very moderate judge. He was old. You know, he wasn't going to be in the Supreme Court for 30 or 40 years. I mean, he did everything he could to kind of give them a nominee that he thought they could support and, you know, really ended up possibly, you know, shooting Hillary Clinton in the foot because of it, because Democrats were not Democratic activists were not particularly excited about Merrick Garland. Um, they weren't going to necessarily go to the polls for him. Uh, they, yeah, I mean, just Democrats never really sort of gay. They Republicans always had kind of leverage either because mainly because Democrats still gave it to him. Let me ask you sort of a, a forward looking question. If Democrats ever do manage to retake power in Washington, you know, one day, do you have any sense of whether they're willing to embrace the same hardball tactics that Republicans have to confirm people? Or would it, someone like Leahy try to go back to the old system where he'd bring back blue slips or something along those lines? I think, you know, I think the caucus seems divided. I mean, you saw this week, um, you know, Durbin was sort of saying how he regretted that Leahy or that um, Reed had, you know, invoked the nuclear option. And he sort of he kind of bought the Republican argument that 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 was that's what sort of set us on this road. And, you know, McConnell would not have gotten rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices if Reed hadn't gotten rid of it for lower court appointees. Um, I think that's wrong. I mean, I think McConnell would have gotten rid of the filibuster for all judges as soon as as soon as he could have. Um, I think the idea that he's going to abide by any norms at this is, you know, really kind of naive. Yeah, it's just an amazing level of good faith. Uh, on yeah, the part of Mitch McConnell, <laughs> right? Like the one man. Yeah, but I mean, but I do think you see, you know, and I think some of it is there is a look. The the Senate is damaged as an institution by by these changes, and I think people like Durbin, certainly people like Leahy, I think really kind of value the institution, and they wanna they wanna sort of try to protect it and restore it, and that leads them to, you know think that if they maybe sort of reinstate the filibuster, things will be good. But I think younger senators um, and and just more liberal senators are ready to go even further than, you know, keeping the, the nuclear option, never, never restoring the filibuster. I mean, I think you're, I think if Democrats take back the Senate this November, 
I think the Supreme Court will have eight justices until after the 2020 election. I don't think there's, and I think that's going to be the norm for a long time now. You're not going to see a, a president who's dealing with the Senate from the other party get his or her Supreme Court justices confirmed. I mean, I think what mm. happened to Merrick Garland will become the norm. I, th- I think Democrats are now willing to go there. Do you, do you think they would go any further? I mean, you know, you people on the left talk about ideas like court packing now. That's yeah, you know, that's on the, sort of the fringes of the conversation. But is that something that you could see ever becoming conceivable? I think so. I think it's. I, I think this, especially after this Kavanaugh thing, uh, this was this was so raw. Um, that hearing today and the the feelings. Demo- I mean, and especially among Democratic voters, they're going to be so angry, and you know, politicians are going to have to respond to that. And I think you, I think you're going to see, you know, the court packing argument move from the fringes. Um, you know, I saw. I think I saw like. Avenatti tweeted about it. I, I'd be surprised if he's the only um, Democratic presidential candidate endorsing that in 2020. I think you're going. I think, I think the court has really been, you know, like every other institution, has basically been destroyed. I think the courts, the courts, you know, long, well down the road to being destroyed um, as a as an institution, people you know hold with any sort of regard on you know both sides of the ideological spectrum. Yeah, that was that was sort of the the feeling I had watching this hearing just that this was sort of the death whale of the supreme court's legitimacy in the eyes of, of liberals that just or of the left and and you know the democrats that confirming kavanaugh well you know maybe good for the the federalist society it, 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 this may be the thing that actually radicalizes uh the left on this issue in a way that they just haven't before they haven't matched the right yeah, you and you really I mean you see it though among sort of the operative class, the democratic operative class. I mean guys like Brian Fallon who, you know, worked for Schumer um in the Senate and then was a Hillary Clinton spokesman. You know, he runs this outside democratic group now that's only about the courts. Um and I think you're going to see more and more people like him. I mean I think one really interesting thing, I mean the only sort of, you know, sort of silver lining in all of this for Democrats right now is what this does to John Roberts. Um who, you know, is a, a real institutionalist when it comes to the Supreme Court, and I think really is someone who wants to try to protect the court and protect its reputation and and protect its place as you know something that both Democrats and Republicans respect. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see if he, you know, presumably Kavanaugh is the you know the fifth vote on a lot more going to be a lot of these five four decisions, but. I could see Roberts becoming more of a swing vote in some ways, it's similar to the way he was in the Obamacare um, decision, trying to protect the the court as an institution and not just as kind of a pure political tool. Um, that I, I, w- I did sort of wonder what he what he thought about today's hearing. All right, Jason, this has been a sobering conversation, but thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks again to Jason Zangerly, political correspondent for GQ magazine and contributing writer at the New York Times magazine. That's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let Isaac know your thoughts about this episode or another episode, email him at ask at slate.com. Again, that's ask at slate.com. And if you want to hear more of me, check out Working. Uh, This season, we're talking to people who work in Colorado's legal cannabis industry. It's a whole season about weed workers. It's great. I talked to a CEO. I talked to uh, a person who trims leaves off marijuana before it's sold in stores, people all up and down the industry. Uh, I'd really love it if you came and listened. Uh, Meanwhile, thanks for listening to this week's episode and check us out next week.